little. All right. Welcome, everyone. It is a delight to see everyone here. And for those of you online, welcome to you as well. We're very thankful that you can join us through the wonders, so-called, of the Internet. But very thankful for it anyway. So, First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9 and focusing our attention there. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. I would ask if you're able to stand, please, for the reading of God's holy word. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please do be seated. Now, this is not quite uh, a complete break with uh, our Life of David series. This does fit in with that, but uh, due to the uh, other preparations and so on uh, for this past week with family camp, uh, uh, I had prepared this message recently for our young people at our summer camp, and it just seemed to me that it was it fit quite well with the psalms that we've been looking at regarding David and in trials and how he's responding in times of trials and affliction and oppression. Uh, this goes right along with that in a in a very wonderful way. When I say the word trials or afflictions or testing. Run that through your mental grid. And what kind of emotional response do you have to those words? Now, there are many words that we use for the things that bring sorrow in this life. Trials, trouble, afflictions, hurt, loss, pain. In this fallen world, there's a lot of this miserable stuff. As... Uh, Elder Stu uh, mentioned during our time of announcements and then also in his prayer. Uh, 
We think about the brothers and sisters in Pakistan who, because it was rumored that a Christian tore a page out of the Quran, Muslim mobs ran rampant through a number of different villages and towns, burning churches, burning Christian homes, beating believers in the streets. Uh, the last count, I believe it was 39 churches that have been burned and well over 150 Christian homes that have been burnt um, and people driven into the streets. A lot of miserable stuff. We tend to be somewhat isolated from a lot of that, and yet uh, we also experience it in our own lives too, as we have uh, afflictions that come our way, illnesses. We've prayed for a number of those things uh, already with uh, Elder Mike this morning, uh, being prayer for Greg as well, who's on top of recovering from his stroke, uh, now is dealing with shingles. Um, so th- these afflictions come into our, our lives, and sometimes it happens just because it's in the, uh, it's kind of woven into this fallen world of, uh, that, that uh, we've inherited of, of, uh, of s- sinfulness and corruption. There's illnesses and afflictions and that sort. Sometimes it's because of the oppression of the wicked that come upon us. Sometimes it's because of our own rebellion uh, that we find ourselves in trouble. Whatever the, the cause, it can be very easy for us to wallow in our troubles. To find an excuse in them to shake our fist at God or to lash out at others. David certainly was experiencing incredible trials and difficulties as he's fleeing from Saul and fleeing from the Philistines and having to learn how, uh, how to respond in the midst of those afflictions as he's walking in the path that he knows God has for him. And yet it's not, at times, a very pleasant path. Seldom would we stop in times of affliction like that and think that such times and such events in our lives are an opportunity to rejoice. And yet, um, nonetheless, they are. Not just rejoice outwardly, but to truly be happy in the midst of those times. Now, in verses 1 and 2, in this introduction to this letter, who's Peter talking to? I think he, he must be talking, because he's talked about rejoicing and everything. Uh, he's talking to people who are living at the height of peace and safety and prosperity, right? That's who he's talking to? He's talking to the elect exiles. They've just been dispersed because of persecution, affliction, and loss all over Asia Minor. And he's writing to them in the midst of this persecution. And first of all, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peace? Peter, did you remember what you just wrote? And then he goes on to say, in the midst of all your afflictions, I want you to rejoice. Has Peter lost his mind here? Is he really thinking about what he's saying? Is this so much Christian platitudes, you know, that you get 
we get a lot of that sometimes uh, in times of sorrow and, and, and loss, don't we? Uh, you've probably been on the, if you've had loss that you've suffered through and sorrowing, there are, there are times when people come up in those and they mean well, but they, they fling verses at you and tell you all will be well and everything's going to be grand and you just, part of you inside wants to reach out and slap them and say, you just don't, don't understand. Peter is not doing that kind of just little platitude effort at trying to comfort somebody who's gone through difficulties. He knows what he's saying, besides the fact that the Spirit of God is inspiring this. Peter knew something that we often forget. He understood, perhaps more than some of the other disciples, about God's great mercy. Did you notice that there in verse 3? According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Peter had been on the receiving end of the Lord's mercy more than once. And boy, did he need it. But you know what? We need it too. Because when the Lord's mercy is at work, in spite of ourselves, this, this, this goodness that God pours out upon us, even when we deserve judgment and we deserve the hardships that we're going through, when His mercy is at work, even the worst of troubles are put in perspective. Because mercy implies sovereignty. Mercy implies wisdom. Mercy implies the power to actually convey favor and grace and goodness in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. And when we recognize that we serve indeed a merciful God, then even in times of trial, you can find joy in spite of the circumstances in which you find yourself. None, none of us like trials. None of us like difficulties. None of us like to be stretched in that way, scraped over the roughness of life until we find ourselves raw and bleeding in our souls. And yet in the midst of that kind of struggle and that kind of trial, God Himself and His mercy is the source of joy in those trials. Let's see why here in these verses. First of all, verses 3 and 5, the 3 through 5, the focus here is upon a hope that will not fail. His mercy brings you an unfailing hope. And here it's developed at the beginning. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Your hope, first of all, is based upon the Father's salvation, his deliverance of your soul. In this work of regeneration, of being born again, out of the deadness of our hearts, He has brought us into life. And He has caused it. Did you catch that word? This isn't your work or my work. There is nothing in our, in our hearts and our souls that can, could possibly begin to bring salvation to us, that could possibly deliver ourselves out of our sins. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. He has caused 
us to be born again. That gives me hope. Because if my salvation is dependent upon my ability to either initiate deliverance or keep myself in a delivered state, I would be utterly hopeless. But in Christ, I have a hope that cannot be taken away. And not just because he's made a declaration, which is, if I think about it, that's enough. But to seal the deal, if I can, if you'll allow me to use such a crass way of putting it, that hope is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see that there? Also in verse 3. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, uh, to reference Elder Willis's prayer just a little bit ago, that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. That he would be our king. He would be our master. He's the one who delivers us because he is the one who has conquered what conquers all of us, death. And delivers us from the pains as we read in the, our Westminster uh, Creed here. He delivers us from the pain and the miseries of not only this life, but of the life to come. And this, this salvation that he has caused, that he has put together a plan to carry out, is fixed and established not by his good intentions, not by his well wishes, but by his divine power. Did you catch that there? Verses 4 and 5. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It, your inheritance cannot perish. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This divine power has sealed us unto a fadeless inheritance by the Holy Spirit of God. What a beautiful picture of the Trinity we have here in these simple verses of the decision of the Father carried out by the work of Jesus Christ and secured to us by the merciful and glorious Holy Spirit. This inheritance in which we are sealed cannot be taken from us. And it's kept not just uh, for us to enjoy in this life, but until the last time, until we are revealed in glory, for as we see, we will be like Him, for we see Him as He is. Not only does He cause us to be born again, He finishes our redemption. And none can take it away. That is our hope. It cannot fail because it rests in God Himself. Then we go on looking at verses 6 through 8. What else does His mercy do? This, according to His great mercy, what has He done? Well, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. Hope uh, is often understood 
um, in our usual way of using the term, is kind of a uh, a wish, something that we would really like to happen, and and I uh, it would be really great if it did. But hope in the scriptures is far deeper than that. It is an earnest expectation that is based upon faith. And our faith is based not upon wishful thinking, but upon facts, but upon reality, upon the revelation of our God. And in His mercy, He doesn't just leave us with wishing and desiring, but with confidence of what He has revealed and what He has promised, that it will take place so that our, our faith will not, uh, will not sag, will not flag, will not uh, uh, ebb and flow, but be strong. That is a blessing of His mercy to us because when we need that mercy, because otherwise our faith would be all over the place. Is it so easy for us, like Peter, to uh, be out there walking on the waves and feel great one minute and be drowning the next because we take our eyes off of him? But in that faith that he gives to us by his mercy, look at the nature of this faith. This faith is, it enables you to rejoice even through the grief of trials. Notice that phrase, if necessary. Oh, I wish that those words weren't there. But I know in my own heart that it's often necessary for me to have a course correction at the Father's hand. Whether it's illness or loss or conflict or just illness, difficulties of of all kinds that come into my life to remind me that I need to continually walk in dependence upon my Lord. And that my, that my faith really is and must be in Him, not in my bank account, not in where I live, not in my job situation, not in all the relationships that I have. My foundation, my security, my confidence is in Him and Him Alone, And when I am fixed on Him and I am trusting Him and my heart is, is settled on Him alone as the one who is the keeper of my soul, then even in the grief of trials, of illness, loss, and sorrow, or conflict in the midst of opposition, I know that my feet have been established. They've been set upon the rock. My goings are set in Him, and I will not sink again by His grace. Because when He's behind my faith, when, when that faith that I possess truly is the gift that only He can give, that faith withstands severe testing. Look there in verse 7. The tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Though the faith is tested by fire, it will last even... You know, gold is purified in fire. And Peter's recognizing even gold can eventually perish and be purged away, but 
doesn't matter how hot the fires of testing are. Your faith, genuineness, the genuine faith that is the gift of God will not perish no matter what. And yeah, it's fire. Fire hurts, of course. Trials are a grief, being grieved by trials. Yes, trials are no fun at all. But our faith can withstand and we can cling to that earnest, eager expectation we know as, as godly hope in Christ will, will not be undone no matter what comes our way. And certainly throughout church history, the stories of Christian martyrs who have withstood unimaginable pain and suffering and sorrows, whose greatest fear and perhaps uh, certainly the only fear that was often expressed was their fear that they might, they might uh, somehow give way and deny their Lord. That was their biggest fear. That's what they prayed for. They, they didn't pray that they wouldn't suffer. They prayed that they wouldn't deny Christ because their faith was fixed in Him. Testing that comes from the fires of persecution. Testing from the fires of afflictions that come upon us in our flesh. Testing even from the fires of temptation that comes our way. We are, we are surrounded with temptations all around us that pull on us. And, and, and we're in this conflict. Paul talked about that conflict, right? Between what he knew to be right and what he knew to be wrong. Between the flesh and the spirit and this constant push-me-pull-you uh, stress in his heart and life that he recognized was there. But his faith was fixed as he finishes that discussion. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. God in His mercy points us to Christ, grants us faith to believe. And thus, as we will read there in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There even in, again, according to His great mercy, He enables us to stand firm. And having done all, to stand. And thus your faith, as we read here also in verse 7, perseveres, to the end, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a faith that, yes, we're, we believe Christ is coming again. We believe all things will be uh, brought to perfection. We believe that we will be brought to a, a state of perfection, no longer subject to sin, no longer subject to temptation, that, that we will... Uh, be with Him and rejoice with Him and be glorious uh, in His presence and rejoice for eternity. Yes, but the conditions of this perseverance that Peter is talking about are conditions of affliction and persecution, dispersion and loss and pain and sorrow. But that's exactly why God keeping us by His mercy and keeping our faith strong until the revelation of Jesus Christ is so glorious. 
If it was easy, it wouldn't be glorious. If I go and fall off a cliff into the, the, the ocean and just fall, um, well, that's pretty easy, particularly for me. <laughs> Not very glorious. Anybody can fall off a cliff. On the other hand, and you, by the way, you wouldn't be impressed, except for maybe the resounding belly flop at the bottom. That, that might bring you some certain satisfaction. At least a couple of you here might find that entertaining. On the other hand, if I leap off the cliff and do a, you know, three or four forward somersaults and spin around and do everything else and then slip into the waters with a... You might be impressed. A little more glory there. More difficulty. What Jesus Christ has accomplished in our life is not something that man could do. It was not easy. It took the death, burial, and resurrection of the glorious Son of God to accomplish our redemption. And so when He keeps us to the final day of consummation and blessing, when we are made perfect finally once and for all in Him, yes, that is to His praise, to His honor, and to His glory. And we share in that glory as well. This glory that is being spoken of by Peter here is not the glory of our self-satisfaction of how well we did in accomplishing our redemption. But that God in His mercy kept us, keeps us so that not one is lost. And this faith of ours that has been given to us what's a motivating factor in this faith you see it there in verse 8 your faith works because of love look at this though you have not seen him you love him this is the motivation for your persevering we're clinging to your faith when everything around you is screaming at you to give it up, pitch it over, and just go live like the rest of the world. After all, why is it worth living this Christian life? It's worth it because of the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in He doesn't fail, and so our faith can stand firm. He will keep us to the very end. And in this condition of hope and faith that does not waver, His mercy is such that uh, He doesn't just let us go through all of this saying, all right, good, you're slogging through, you've got some hope, you're, you're gutting it out here in the trenches, and I'm glad you've got your faith. Quit whining. Take it like a man. He doesn't do that to us. In His mercy, He grants us joy that is beyond comprehension. And here's where the joy in trials comes in. Because honestly, 
As we go through the trials of this life, the difficulties of this life, I mean, there's, there's a whole group of people called the Stoics who just, hey, fine, this is what it's going to be. We're just going to grunt our way through this. And yeah, it's going to be painful. It's going to be awful. But hopefully we'll get through it. Yeah, okay, fine. Does anybody want to live that way? I don't. And I don't think anybody here does either. But honestly, it's not really about what I want. The fact is, is that God, in His mercy, grants us joy even in the midst of those difficulties. We, uh, there's, I suppose, with the Stoics, there's, a, there's an element of truth. Most errors, there is an element of truth in there that, yes, as things come and go, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to, to whine about it. Um, when you uh, uh, ask Julian how Julian is doing, Julian will often say, uh, what? What does Julian usually say? How are you doing? Saying, I can't complain. And, uh, and then I usually follow up with him and say, and it wouldn't do you any good if you did. And of course, he's being a little bit uh, uh, lighthearted about that. When you talk to Greg, he takes it the other way. You say, how you doing? And what does he always say? Better than I deserve. There's an element of truth to say, yeah, okay, when things come our way, yep, yeah, well, we, we receive them. Um, Solomon talks about it, about receiving the things that come from the hand of God. And counting it, okay, that's from the Lord's hand and it's His gift to us and we'll march through. But I'm thankful that it doesn't stop there. But that God provides us genuine joy because of who Christ is and what He's done. Look at verse 8. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This joy begins in belief. It, believe, it, it begins in the facts of who God is and what God has done. Though people may, uh, in the world, may, may laugh and find occasion for hilarity and, and celebration, and usually it's a celebration that's, that's uh, brought on by diversion, not genuine joy. Because the fact is that there is no joy in agnosticism. There's no joy in atheism. Oh, they can tell jokes. But that's not joy. There is no abiding gladness or bliss there is no freedom from fear. There is no freedom from doubt or uncertainty for the agnostic who says you can't know or for the atheist who denies what is known because all they're doing is introducing uncertainty and falsehood into their life. You cannot have genuine, abiding bliss and joy. On the other hand, Paul would pray as he wrote to the Roman church, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
as we believe by His grace in God as He has revealed Himself and find our confidence and joy in Him, then no matter what is swirling around us, we can find our joy in His presence. And this joy is inexpressible, gloriously inexpressible. As it said, as I read, just read there in verse 8. Inexpressible and filled with glory. With glory, and I would say with glorifying. Filled with praise and a recognition of the perfections of God as they are carried out in your life. To sustain you in the midst of a trial. You will know joy in Him. David, turn to him, would speak. In Psalm 16, where he would say, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At the right hand of power, the place where God exercises His favor, I know joy, pleasure, bliss in His presence. Even if I'm ill, even if I'm poor, even if I'm persecuted, for the name of Jesus Christ, I am set in Him. And nothing can rob me of that joy. We were speaking of this a little earlier uh, during Sunday school time. Here's the Apostle Paul and Silas, the Philippian jail. They've been scourged, they're back and bones laid bare by the Roman scourge, clapped in iron, sitting on cold, rough stone, trying to not lean against anything. And what are they doing in the prison? They're singing praises. And not just to put on a brave face, but in genuine joy. If they had just been putting on a brave face and putting on a show, the Philippian jailer would have never gone in there going, I want that. There's all kind of hypocrisy and phony garbage in this world. Even fallen men and women know that that's not something worth going after. Genuine joy in the midst of those things can only come as you are resting in the presence of your God and knowing that He's got you well in hand. And therefore, your joy will not be disappointed. Here we come full circle back to verse 3. Remember there? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your joy will not be disappointed. Because this is the goal of God's redeeming work to finish His deliverance once and for all in your hearts. So, as the Apostle James would say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
the testing that the Lord has sent to you is a sign of God's great mercy. The, the testing that comes upon us is not something that sneaks up on us unbeknownst to God. In His sovereign hand, He sends these things in our life to test us, to refine us, and to give us opportunity to, under, to see Him in His most glorious. When we are at our weakness and most vulnerable, He is at His most powerful and glorious. He doesn't let you rush headlong into destruction, but He tests you, trains you, guides you to that narrow road that leads to eternal life. So do not fear trials. Look for God's mercy in them. And as you do so, you will know genuine joy in Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these words of the Apostle Peter to those elect saints so long ago who were scattered across Asia Minor by the fires of persecution and loss. Thank you that he could speak to them in that condition. Such incredible words of encouragement. As we consider who you are and what you've done and what you sovereignly have brought into our lives to refine us and make us more fit for heaven. Let us find joy even in trial, knowing that even these things are from your sweet, loving, merciful hands. You know what we need and you will keep our souls until the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his blessed name.